Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, we got Joe Justice back on the podcast with us. So Joe doesn't need really any introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. So Joe, he uh, is the founder and creator of Team WikiSpeed, uh, created a car that set four uh, world records, uh, land speed records, 100 miles to the gallon, all these crazy things. Worked with Bill Gates, uh, Tesla, Elon Musk companies, uh, Amazon, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, Joe also believes in Scrum and has a book called Scrum Master. That's pretty amazing that we're going to talk about today. And um, yeah, so Joe, like, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's my honor and privilege to be here. And for the strongest reason is that the last time we had an event together, you played the final countdown with a remix of video clips and images you'd grabbed from all over the internet that had me in them. And it looked like I was part of the band Europe. <laughs> there were strobe lights and everything. So I, I, I owe you like a life debt. It's like a life bond now. Like we're, we're linked. The Agile Wire and, and me are a set. Yeah, it was amazing. And we did that at a conference, uh, Mad City Agility Conference. It was, it was a way we kind of kicked things off. So we'll have to th- put something in the beginning of this episode to like really fire it up maybe. Uh, yeah, so Joe, let's, uh, let's dive into the conversation. Jen, Jen. Ago, but you did some edits and stuff like that now and you're putting it into new and different languages and stuff like how's that going like is that how has that been like just the interpretation from different languages and making sure it's like really has your intent like the books what's in, that like the books in eight languages now uh, and then there's previews of the first 50 pages in i think four more languages they're all on lean pub and any of the books that are in full version are on amazon um the Translation pract- the translation process is awesome at making the original copy better uh, because each time the editors and the translators get together and I get to be part of it and they say, what's your goal for who would read this and how? And I say, I wish a middle school kid in whatever this target language is would have fun reading this and understand it. So if there's stories you can link it to that make sense in this language, in this culture package, that make it easier to understand this concept, change it, make it yours. And the translators and editors get listed many times in books, editors' names aren't even ever written. You don't know who edited it, despite how much effect they have on the book, they're hidden. Um, So the editors and translators are all on the cover and the inside cover of each of the copies I do because they've had such an impact. Well, when that happens, they translate it back to English too for me to try to understand what's going on, see if I still put my stamp on it too. Is it still the point I wanted to make? And I learn a lot. So the English book is now in version 22 uh, and a whole new chapter was added um, based on the translation feedback I got and then the experience I had working for Musk. The biggest change is I wrote this book, Scrum Master, and then I worked for Elon and it went way beyond what I thought I knew was Agile. And so I've added this chapter 21 that basically says, okay, everything you just read was pretty good, but here's a summary of what's like way better. So you can kind of just read this chapter. Um, so <laughs> it's been updated with like what goes way, way, way beyond what most of us think Scrum might be. Uh, but anyway, the, the book has been a phenomenal journey. Um, 
getting to know the translation teams and the editing teams has been a practice in distributed project management that's incredibly fun. Hmm. Uh, and the output is something I'm really proud of. I'll throw in a feature request for you, put it on Audible and have your voice do it, because I think it would be amazing if you did that. Take it. <laughs> challenge, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. That's that's my issue. And part, part of it is just uh, laziness. So I, I have it up on my other screen over here, Joe. So, so no insult. I haven't quite read it yet. But the reason I haven't read it yet is because it's not on Audible. Like, that's just a, a game changer for me. So I spend an hour on the treadmill every morning or I'm lifting weights or something. That's 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 my daily zen is to go into the gym every morning. And when I'm in the gym, I'm either watching the news um, or I'm listening to an audio book. Um, now, Jeff Boobles has this little hack where he gets his like Kindle to read to him or something like that. But I just can't stand the robot voice when it's coming through. So um, I will plus one Boobles uh, uh, request there to, to get it onto Audible because that's that's going to hook me as a reader. On YouTube.com slash Joe Justice Zero, someone got Joe Justice before me, Joe Justice Zero. I read an earlier version of the whole book into YouTube. So it's me wearing different hats and hanging out and, and saying, I am Joe Justice and this is my book. I tried to make it a little less dry than that. And I add all this editing feedback because it, I was recording it for attracting editors. Can I find skillful editors? So can someone please help me word this better? Here's what I'm trying to say. And it ends up being an extra 20% longer than if I just read the text because mm -hmm. I have all these pleas for help for skillful editing. That's on YouTube. It, and it needs to be re-recorded better, better microphone, better audio, uh, and make its way into Audible. But uh, a treadmill-friendly version at uh, 3x speed is available through YouTube uh, of an earlier version of the book. And it's not that bad. Is, you got a handle? Have you checked out YouTube's new handles? Like, that's a new thing. Like, is... and, the, and they claim oh, Joe Justice man. already. And, and apparently it's someone whose name is not Joe Justice, but it's their stage name. I think they're a Western guitar player. Which is awesome. I mean, go for it. it. It is a pretty cool name. I support you, right? But but they got it before me. So I am Joe Justice Zero. That's pretty good. Like, I, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, but I think it was Max Powers was, was another teammate that I, I used to work with. And just like, anytime somebody comes in with a superhero name, like, you know, you know, they mean business. So epic, <laughs> epic. Like Jeff and Jeff. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you both played Double Dragon, right? I mean, because clearly that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to jump into, um, I don't know, Justice's Law, because I think it's a really cool topic. And I think it's one of the things that can lead us down. Like, one of the biggest problems I see in organizations is product definition. They, they establish a product around something that's not a product at all. It's an organizational structure. They follow Conway's Law. They say, we have this department. Let's create some applications around it or something that goes inside of that. And um, it's not modular. There's no interfaces to it. There's a bunch of handoffs and delays inside of the organization. And they deliver very, very slow. And so maybe we can dive into Justice's Law and like how that like totally turns the situation around. What do you think? If a company is interested in speeding up uh, and, and speeding up release to market, like all, all the way to RTM, uh, then Justice's Law is useful in that, well, then also you need to have interest in restructuring the company. So that those are two big ifs already. Not every company is interested in speeding up RTM and not every company is interested to take on a restructuring activity. 
But if they were, justice's law is a, is, is a very powerful tool for them. Um, exactly as you said, Jeff, it takes uh, what is the thing you want to get to market? Is that a team? And then it applies what I learned from Bill Gates. How many parallel executable work streams are there in that product, in that thing you want to get to market? Each of those should be a team. And now you can measure that two ways. One is I have 100 teams. So let's keep trying to re-architect this thing until we have 100 independent parallel executing work streams because that's maximum release. Now that takes very skillful architecting so they're not dependents. So they're not waiting on each other, but it can be done. So that's one way to execute justice's law. The other way is you say, this thing neatly splits into 100 parallel executable work streams. We need to hire or we need to acquire or we have 200 teams. Let's allocate half or let's have two teams on each, right? So it depends which is your governing constraint. Uh, that's something Musk also does is what is the most expensive part to change Everything subordinate to that, like absolutely maximize that, make that the bottleneck because it's the most expensive thing to change. So everything else is by definition less expensive to change. So fix everything else. Um, so whether it's your company size, the number of teams we have access to, uh, mobs is really the number of mobs, skillful, productive, self-testing, self-designing mobs. The number of that should equal the number of parallel executing work streams. And they should have no other organization other than the thing you want to get to market. If we have like a quality assurance group, we've created a queue. I mean, it's great to have quality assurance, right? But now everyone's in, in line for them. So instead, we'd want to automate what our quality assurance check should be, which is, has given birth to this whole thing called DevOps now. And that takes us into automating all management, which is the hot topic of the week if you've seen Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, I, I dropped a bomb and a lot of other people got on board with it, which was, why would we have a human make this decision anyway? Give me one good reason we wouldn't want an algorithm or an app to make this decision. And let's be ruthlessly honest about our answer. And that has exploded <laughs> into the digital self-management movement uh, because in some of you just saw AI day um, for Musk and I'm not in a Musk company anymore. I retired in 2020. Um, the team showing the version two and then alpha version three of that robot said every key decision about that robot was made by a gradient descent algorithm. There's no like Mr. Robot or Mrs. Robot or leader or manager that's making the decisions of how many actuators it should have, what its movement vocabulary should be. Uh, should it have six fingers like a non-human or five like a human? None of that. It, they're all saying, so we collected this data set and we coded a basic gradient descent algorithm and it told us this is what we need to do. And they said that at least 10 times across that three and a half hour presentation and still people don't get it. They're like, who's making the decisions in Tesla? It's an AI. Well, actually, it's a series of a few hundred AIs. It's digital self-management. And what that means is there's just faster decision-making. There's no coalition to wait on critical decisions for the robot or any other key system. Uh, and I, I think other companies are, are going to get more and more excited about 
that. So for those of us that are a little bit slower in the audience, you, you, um, a gradient decision algorithm, I think is what you called it? A, a gradient descent. Um, oh, sorry, descent. Can you elaborate just a little bit on, like not too far into the weeds, but like, I think I know what you mean by that, but just in case. Oh, you're hilarious. You're hilarious, Jeff. But, but yes, my, my wish is that an interested middle schooler would have no problem following this. So, so let's, uh, although some probably are, very deep and more vocabulary than and any of us are, uh, but I'll, I'll try. So um, mathematically, if we have an Excel spreadsheet or a bunch of lines of text and they represent something, uh, well, let's use the actual example from the Tesla bot so people can actually see this video if they want to. They said, how does this robot need to move? They filmed hours and hours of people doing actual work in Tesla factories, doing meaningful things like racking batteries, like putting parts on cars, like actually things they are paying humans to do because they're not so easy for robots to do now. And they filmed, how are they actually moving? Then they have software drop dots on where it thinks joints are. So it tries to label where it thinks joints are, like elbows, wrists, shoulders. And it's not perfect, but it's not bad. It tries to label joints. And then it drops colored dots, truly colored dots on a video file of where those joints are. And then another piece of software says, how different are these joints? How few, like if we say these dots need to be anywhere within 100 millimeters of each other, about four inches, how few dots can we have? How few joints could we have and still accomplish this entire movement vocabulary? And they came up with a number. It was like 27. And they came up with a number of total rough movements that those dots need to flow through. And it was just over 120. So there's not some human who says, this is the movement vocabulary the robot needs to do. The software is looking at video, putting dots on it, and the way it does that is something called gradient descent. It says we will we'll put random dots within 100 millimeters of these dots randomly and see does that overlap where the joint moves through all these hours and hours of video that we play at ultra high speed and it creates a, a cloud. And then the descent algorithm is let's try eliminating points and see if we're still overlapping as much. And once we have the fewest number that the smallest cloud with the maximum overlap, that's where we've descended. We've gradient descended into deciding, making a decision. Well, then we'll do what's called a random reset. We'll try a different point cloud and run it again and see if the overlap percentage is higher. And that's the, the random reset of a gradient descent. And that's the fundamental basis of almost all modern machine learning or artificial intelligence is, is basically that overlapping dots, whether they're numbers or actually dots, but we can visualize them as dots either way. And then doing a random reset. And we call it a descent when we have a more and more dense overlap of those point clouds. And, and that's how we make decisions in these digitally backbone companies. Justice's law would have us do it the same way. What's the maximum number of parallel executing work streams we can have with the resources? So basically, we have? we're going from expert opinion where we think something's going to happen to simulations with, with empirical data and just basically, I mean, almost knowing with some type of certainty that this is likely to happen. 
uh, which is, sounds pretty amazing and fast. And so the I, I do want to jump in real quick, and th- we probably don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but like that seems fundamentally flawed with a data set bias. Like you are taking films of human beings doing the movement. So inherently the output is going to look like a human being. So how a machine can only learn with the data set that it's provided. So, okay, what if a tarantula was moving around boxes? Like what would that look like? What would it look like if a dolphin was like, so I I guess like inherently though, that seems a little bit flawed to me, but I don't know if that necessarily uh, pertains to to a topic we want to jump into. (laughs) That's exactly the bottleneck for this type of decision-making, which is why humans are for creative problem solving. AI and machines are for execution. So if we need to make a decision that's radically creative, currently, that's people's job. If humans are ever doing anything that's not creative problem solving, we've missed an opportunity to automate and the company is suboptimal. The company is slow and vulnerable to a faster moving, higher automated competition. Now, at some point, we could get AGI, generalized artificial intelligence. Uh, That would be interesting. Uh, a one way to say that that may happen at some point is can these extremely creative decisions be made also by software? We're not there yet. Right now, what the software is really good at doing is taking the creative inputs that humans have determined and then making really useful conclusions extremely quickly, reliably, and repeatedly from a data set. So the question becomes, why would we ever ask a human to make that decision? And a good answer is because we want radical creativity. Now you can have random, uh, random start points, which creates a certain type of creativity, but what about guided creativity to determine which data sets to feed? That's a good criteria to say humans should be in the loop. Otherwise, if it's something like approving time off or determining if the paint job got better or coaching an employee to improve, that's a job for an AI. I guess I'm, I'm just thinking about this little meta level, thinking about like why why do it this way? Why humans? To your point, Jeff, and I th- I would guess that labor has got to be the most expensive thing in all of the bus companies, right? Pretty close. So if you want to, if you just like you said earlier, if you want to optimize yeah, for the most expensive thing, let's get rid of the most expensive thing, that manual labor, and get people at what they're best at, making decisions being creative, right? Like those types of things. So I think that's pretty cool that we're moving down that path. And I don't think many people would think like, let's just automate everything and create a robot to do it, you know, or everything that's manual and repetitive, you know? Well, there's something, there's something truly lovely and kind about the idea of sticking with a human form factor. Uh, The Musk companies aspire to uh, truly change what labor means. And one way to measure economy is GDP, and that's output per capita. Uh, And by automating that output and decoupling it from per capita, you get a different type of scaling than economies have ever experienced in the history of life. Um, Now, that doesn't mean this plan will be successful, but that that is the goal. The goal is to change what an economy means by approaching the fundamental formula of GDP. Okay, 
if that were successful, and that's already an if, I'm not saying it's destined to be true, but the, the play is big. It's a big long-term play. If that's successful, the Musk companies have said, that Elon said, they're doing something very kind in maintaining the human form factor so that humans can still do it if they enjoy it. And it still maintains compatibility with humans. Like if it's a dolphin or tarantula, it actually might be more efficient. But then humans can't ever do that work. And then what if paintbrushes or, or whatever, the, the tool starts to be optimized for this new form factor and humans can't be involved? Well, not all of us just want to sit on the beach forever. I mean, it's not that bad a choice, but I mean, some of us want to play a piano. Well, what does a piano mean if it's been optimized for dolphins? That's pretty cool. But then what do the humans do? Um, so there, there's a fundamental kindness. And this is part of what the Musk companies are trying to do with AI by intentionally trying to make the best, the fastest, the most useful AI trying and have it be human recognizable. And they've realized at some point, if the AI is extremely successful, it wouldn't be recognizable. It would just be too fast. It'd be like a, a, a human trying to talk to a tree, right? The AI being the human, the human being the tree. Um, if it's successful, again, a big if, but if it's successful, how would they maintain compatibility? And that started a whole new company, Neuralink, which its one intention is extreme high bandwidth direct communication to a human from something digital uh, for that reason. Again, it's like avoiding the tarantula, which might actually be the better solution. So it's how do you make the humanoid one get there first so it can be the precedent, even if it's not as great, to lovingly and kindly maintain legacy compatibility with, with us uh, to be a human-centered <laughs> future. Oh, it's so funny the way you phrase that. Like, and I know you like we're being... Uh, mean when it, but like we are legacy. At some point in time, the human being is going to become legacy, um, and even that is just kind of interesting to think about. But well, if not, that's a pretty sad version of advancement, right? So right. I, I hope we can enjoy the ride and still be able to see what the ride is. You know, we're not just in matrix-like vats watching TV from a bygone era. <laughs> I hope we're part of that future. But by definition, I hope capability moves way past what we have now, or it's a pretty sad theory of what a brighter future is. Sure. So, Jeff, if, if you don't mind, I wanted to um, ask, uh, the last time we, we, we talked, Joe, um, I don't know exactly where you were at, but now you're in Honolulu. And so I was curious, like, what, what brought you over there? Oh, sure. I mean, like most big decisions in life, there's a lot of reasons. Um, a huge one is I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana in a small town. And it was a dream, like a fantastical dream, like go to Mars, which is a dream I have now. But at, when I was a kid, it's too far out there, was go to Hawaii, right? There was this huge dream since, since childhood. So in a in one way, it's simply trying to make good on the lifestyle I promised myself as a little kid, if I ever could. So in, in one way, it's that, keeping promises to childhood self. Then another reason is um, Toyota went really serious about going agile. They created um, an advanced research lab called TRIAD in Tokyo as an entirely separate company with its own policy. And they brought me in to train everybody including the next CEO of Toyota, Daisuke Toyota, 
was my direct student for agility. There's plenty of things Daisuke could have taught me and everyone else, but for agility, I, I was the person. Um, and then they created a holding company called Woven Planet just to buffer this agile company from current Toyota with the idea being when Daisuke becomes CEO to bring someone experienced with agile leadership into helming that company proper. Well, that took me all the way through Toyota supply chain and then related into Fujitsu, into Sony, etc. So I had all this work on Asia time zone, not even just Japan, also the Australian special forces and a bunch of China company, uh, especially China automotive battery and med tech. So I had all this Asia centered time zone work and COVID happened and I couldn't travel very easily in some cases, not at all. And the time zone was really rough. So I also did a time zone map and said where that my passport will take me right now during COVID can I continue to serve that huge part of my client base without ignoring the rest of my client base. And it looks like if you're comfortable working anytime the sun is up or, you know, basically from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. or something, if that's okay with you, or even a little longer, maybe 6 a.m. to midnight, maybe, you know, if, if, if you really wanted to, if you loved your work, if your work was vital to you and you, it was refreshing to you, you can do two thirds of the world from anywhere, right? So where do you position so that that one third is not your current target market? Maybe it's mostly open ocean. I mean, there's someone everywhere, right? But it's mostly open ocean or something. And it turns out Hawaii is a wonderful spot to cover most of where I currently had opportunity. Um, so time zone worked really well. Uh, then last and actually maybe most important, some of you know I made this car company called Wikispeed back in 2006. That was a result of driving a road on Maui called the Road to Hana. Uh, Hana is this tiny little town, and the Road to Hana is this beautiful cliffside, windy road that goes past these black beaches and white beaches and different kinds of sand and rock beaches. Um, and it hit me at a gut level that I had not experienced. Uh, it it, it changed my life. It changed what I wanted my life to be. I wanted my life to be environmentally friendly. Uh, and maybe how that directly comes out of driving the road to Hana isn't immediately obvious to someone who might not have driven that road. But truly, it was I wanted to preserve this gorgeous experience. And I wanted it to be incredibly scaleful. I wanted everyone in the world to have the opportunity to experience these beautiful things if they wanted to. And then my own personal broken switch. I love cars. I love racing. I mean, in, in a way, I'm just a little kid playing with trucks in a sandbox, right? I mean, like, like most of us, we didn't really grow up. How to reconcile those things. And I created an environmentally friendly, affordable race car company that was crowdsourced with open source three-dimensional design, like open source CAD, the way Wikipedia open sources article editing as bizarre as that was. And it worked. We set four world records. Um, and Wikispeed is right now uh, shopping for a new team garage next to the Nürburgring um, in, in Germany. Uh, the team Wikispeed in, in Germany is still very active uh, and in Canada and other areas. Well, this experience in Hawaii 
changed the trajectory of my life from there on out. And everything got better once I embraced that trajectory. Like my relationships got better. My, I, I had more focus in what I wanted to be and that attracted people that liked focus and velocity and momentum. Um, I made more money. I, whatever your measure is, it things got better. I had more fun, I think. And I don't think that's the last life-changing changing or life-directing experience I'm going to have on these islands. It's, uh, at least for me, really useful. And I found it surprisingly affordable. A reason I thought I couldn't work here is, one, how would I work? Well, now I mostly work online, so maybe I can. And then, two, how could I afford it? The condo I got here was a third of the price of the place I'd been living in Seattle. Seattle's a very high-priced market, too. But I decided I could live in Seattle, but I decided I couldn't live in Hawaii. Well, I actually ran the numbers. It was 30% the cost um, of, of that market, right? So all these factors hit together. And so I'm currently talking to you with Starlink as my backup from a little office condo seven minutes from the beach. Sounds like life is good, man. Good for you. <laughs> could be worse. Come on over. Let's have an agile board meeting. <laughs> So um, I, I, I certainly don't want to get you in trouble, but what uh, uh, lots of interesting stuff that you said in there, um, the, the whole Toyota um, base, to me, what I heard was skunk works, right? Like setting yeah. up a, a little org within an org sheltered from the bureaucracy of how a typical organization would do. Um, I forget where that, that story came from, the original skunk works. I think it was like a, it was a, an air, air force or something like that. Uh, where they were designing the, I think the B-52 or some sort of spy, spies plane. Anyway, super interesting story. Is there any um, any takeaways from that experience? Uh, and you don't have to be specific with it, but is there any takeaways from that experience that you could share or any learnings that you had from it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the Skunk Works analogy and the rapid innovation for peacetime or not is is powerful and we could build up to this from a historian's perspective which i find incredibly interesting but if you don't mind i'll jump directly to modern applicability because i think that fits the agile wire audience well um people who are passionate about making the best out of the company they've got or the company they're going to grow into or their next company um it looks like to go super fast, having very few clear rules helps. Uh, the Musk companies do this with a four-page onboarding document, and they say this is the entire company policy. Like, this is it. So if you can roughly keep that in your head, there's 15 items. If you can keep these 15 items in your head, you can pretty much do anything you want without asking for permission, because this is your bounds. This is what our policy is. It's not that you can do anything. We have policies. There's 15 of them. Now, that's very lean. Most companies have hundreds of policies. Like just for procurement, there's more than 100 policies alone, right? Much less hiring somebody. That's another 100 or more. The must companies have 15. And it fits in four pages, actually, like 3.2 pages. Um, and it's called the Anti-Handbook Handbook. And that is available online. Someone leaked it, and Tesla has never asked that it be taken down. It's on Scribd, uh, S-C-R-I-B-D. Uh, and, and so it's not been officially released by Tesla, but it's never been asked to be taken down. And I think that is a really powerful enabler. Well, that is a recipe for radical speed. 
uh, or radical empowerment and self-organization, which can help speed a lot. So what do you do if you're in a company that through age or whatever reason already has hundreds of policies? And so people work in subgroups where they feel they understand what their limits are and they hold themselves into a smaller limit than they need to because it's hard to know what the total rule set is, right? They outsource that to managers. And then that's even complicated for managers. They outsource that to managers of certain skills groups uh, who would say, well, I at least have confidence in how to make decisions about mechanical engineering or procurement. So you get skills groups just to try to navigate the complexity of the company's policies. Okay. Well, how do you create a group of people that I hope are excited and skillful and have access to great automation and excellent information, but they have very few rules and the rules they do have are good and align them towards what the company actually wants to pay to create. Well, one way is to create a skunk works. A skunk works is a company that's not beholden to the policies legally. It is not legally beholden to the policies of the parent company. And it's protected from people trying to impose nannyism or micromanagement from the parent company. And that's part of the story as to why Skunk Works was set up originally in the California desert. It's, it's, it's an awful location with tarantulas and rattlesnakes. It's beautiful also. I have a little factory in the California desert right by the original Skunk Works for the same reason. It's very austere. It's very beautiful. But people don't randomly stop by there very easily. It's out of the way enough. The weather is brutal enough. I mean, it's right by Death Valley, um, where if you get there, it's not that easy to leave. And it's hard for management from the previous parent company or the funding company to just stop on by. So you can focus. And if you have this minimum rule set, that's one of the parts of the recipe is going really fast. Now, the other recipe is you start aggressively sunsetting is the more accepted term current policies. Now, there's a reason all of those policies were created, and there's a scar behind every one of those policies. So it's really terrifying to remove a policy, but there's not another recipe for self-organization, empowerment, and speed. Uh, so most companies don't choose to actually take that on, to start repealing policies, to sunsetting them, to try to get down to four pages or less total. Uh, but, so when uh, you're talking about removing the, the policies, that's at the parent company, not at the Skunk Works company, right? The Skunk Works ones probably got very few, like like you're talking about, like the 15 or so. Like they just start from nothing, I would assume, right? Right. Well, over time, I'm lucky enough to have worked with uh, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Over time, policies grow in almost any company unless they have a, a leader who aggressively shelters everyone and takes the risk for not adding the new policy, takes that flack. And that's very rare to have a leader that has such a high tolerance for surprising pain, which is truly, that, that, that's how Musk sums it up. Um, and that's what Musk is. Musk shelters. You know, we don't have a policy around X. I will take that criticism. And so Musk is very often vilified, which, you know, comes with that territory, that type of leadership. Um, so either you create a skunk works and then once it grows and rule set, you create a new skunk works. <laughs> and once it grows and rule set, you create a new skunk works. That works. Um, or you prevent policy growth or, you know, have, have it be a really high bar to add a policy and you make it a really low bar to remove a policy. 
And that takes a huge amount of risk and flack and being dragged through the mud publicly. So most companies don't do that. Instead, what most companies do is the skunk works and then another skunk works and then another skunk works. They'll give them names like tiger teams and innovation engines and maker spaces. And, you know, as soon as it has a big success, it gets attention. And when it gets attention, policies grow unless you have someone to take that on. So ideally, the recipe is actually to reduce policies in the parent company, but that takes a type of empowered leader who will handle the flack and like truly go to court and take depositions and uh, be on prime media to explain again and again and again why that policy is not in existence. Most people won't do that. Most organizations won't do that. Uh, but that is actually the long the long term success, the only long term success path. So other than policy pruning and reduction, um, and I'm kind of thinking back to our, our last conversation, you hit on pretty adamantly like definition of ready, definition of done, walk up simple. Those were kind of key concepts, I think, that that kind of came out of that. And I would assume that the spirit of that is still inside of a, a skunk work. It's still we're here to get something to done. So we need to have clarity on it. We need to shorten the feedback loop and the timing to actually get to that point. And we need to be consistently inspecting and adapting and addressing any of the issues that are coming up and causing us not to be able to achieve these goals. I'll, I'll even put a finer point on it. I mean, it, it, that's exactly what I think I understand too. And I think a lot of the agilists that uh, subscribe to this Agile Wire agree and are fundamentally a fan of and find value in definition of ready and definition of done. I'll sharpen it even more. Um, I was hired into Tesla being told I was the best interview they ever had. And I brought an agile tool set with me that many people called legendary, the world's expert in agile hardware. Almost the only value I could add to that company was amplifying what they were already doing with definition of ready and definition of done. Like that's how good the company is. Right? And, and so then I, what I hope that means is that's how good, what most of us agilists understand DOR and DOD to be, that's how good DOR and DOD is, even in a company that blindingly awesome. And I truly believe it is uh, all of the must companies, DOR and DOD still added value. Um, and, Part of why is it fits in with these, with, with justice's law. If you have these mobs, these productive work groups, what, what do they work from and towards? They work from a DOR and they work to a DOD. So that determines what the mob does. And that determines the policies that might or might not apply to that mob, that work group, that work stream. And that tells you what the overall architect of your company is. So if your DORs and DODs match what you want to get to market, you have a high justices law score. You have a high organizational efficiency. If they don't, if you have DORs and DODs that are like, this document has been signed off, well, which bring to market is that related to? Well, all of them, that's a bottleneck, right? You can see your bottlenecks just by looking at the DOR and DOD because it makes the, the handoff points visible. And if those aren't aligned with a work group that tests and designs some work that's aligned with something we're trying to bring to market, we see we have an opportunity to make a more efficient company. And that's just theory of constraints and critical chain and uh, waiting theory, queuing, queuing theory. 
Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about the modules, if you wanted to start, someone's like, well, we have those in our company. We have modules. We call them this. And you're like, well, tell me about your modules. And then they start telling you about you, and you're like, wait, so you can only deploy this time because you're dependent on this team and that team and that team. And so you you really don't have good interfaces. You don't make things backward compatible. Okay. Now, you don't really have that. You have, you know, in theory, you have different backlogs and different products and different modules, whatever term you want to use, but you don't. They're all related. They're all intertwined so tightly that that makes you very, very slow and brittle, right? Like it's the opposite of agility. There's a lot of opportunity in a lot of companies to bring our modules towards parallel executable yep. work streams. But I think it's, it doesn't, let's talk a little bit more about those interfaces. I think that's a big gap. Like when we're talking interfaces from like a car, right? Like you're saying we can take, um, I don't know, like the alternator out here and say, we can put a different one in and we're going to be able to plug it in, but it's got these holes and these gaps and this is how these things connect to the other parts of the engine, right? Like that's what we're talking about. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So same connectors. And if we need to change a connector, then we need to still have the old one because we're going to have to deal with that for a period of time. So we might have to have both options for a while. We have to have some level of backward compatibility, right? What I was seeing is to keep that backwards compatibility is a team would change something. I, calling it a team is maybe a legacy of how much agile it was in before. I mean, a group of people. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't quite have the same team rigidity that I was used to, uh, but a group of people, they would deploy a new interface with an adapter on it. And they wouldn't even tell the other teams, like it would just arrive, but the adapter's there and it's been tested to the adapter, so it, it works. And the other teams would say, there's an adapter. In, immediately, that makes other work areas that share that interface know that if they can meet the new interface, we can discard this adapter and it gets cheaper. And if someone starts seeing a pile of these adapters somewhere, they know they don't have to keep making them. Um, and, and it's speed of innovation is the only thing that matters. So never wait on telling another team you want to change the interface. Just never even wait. Provide an adapter. And don't even wait to say the interface, the adapter isn't needed anymore. Um, when you see the pile up, we know to eliminate it because cost reduction is not the only thing that matters in the long run. Pace of innovation is the only thing that matters in the long run, uh, is the theory of these really fast companies. And that's what makes them so exciting to work in. Um, currently, when this is recorded, Musk is in the process of maybe sort of kind of buying Twitter. So we'll see when people are listening to this, watching this later, what actually happens. It's in court and who knows? Well, Musk said, we're going to be a hardcore information security, network security, InfoSec company. And it's going to be really grueling, hardcore engineering. And work ethic expectations are going to be incredibly demanding but less than I demand of myself, is what Musk said. So what happened? Job interest in Twitter went up 250%. Like people that want to crush it, look for companies where they want to crush it, right? Oh, I see, Twitter right now is a honeypot. I go there, I make a lot of money, but my output is very small. I'm mostly in meetings. If Musk takes over this place, he says it's going to be about hardcore engineering. I'm going to get a huge amount done. My output per person, my GDP, is going to go way up. I'm the type of person that likes to crush it. I like to do awesome work fast with high quality. This is where I want to go. Interest booms. So uh, 
focusing on pace of innovation attracts talent. It actually causes job growth and it also causes retention. People feel actualized at work. It creates engagement. Yeah. People want to build stuff. People want to be creative, right? People want to be successful and be a part of a successful team. And so I think, you know, if you give people that opportunity, you give them the wide guardrails, you give them all the resources, like for the most part, you're going to attract the people that are going to make that stuff happen. And that's going to become your culture. And when that is your culture, I don't know, it becomes a, a wave that's hard to slow down because you jump on that wave and it's like, you either get going with it or you get left behind. Like there's two choices. That's it. You know? Um, so I don't know. I think it's an amazing thing. I, there's been a few companies that have been lucky enough to be a part of and teams that have been lucky to be a part of that had similar attributes to that. And when you're on it, it's pretty amazing. Um, so I don't know. I hope everybody gets a chance to be on a company or a team like that at some point. I hope a lot more people here start companies. Um, it, there's a lot of agilists uh, that I run into that say I've done fantastic agile within my sphere of influence. But now I'm up against other parts of the organization that are outside my influence, but I have a queue with them. So it, it's limited me currently, you know, until I have more allies, more people understand or have a similar wish and goal. I, I'm, I'm in a local maximum. I'm not in a global maximum. Um, or Agilists that say, I'm writing articles about how to do this. I'm writing training materials. I'm doing coaching to help companies do this. Same, same issue, though. What I wish many more people with Agile Skill would do is found companies. Yes, it's hard work. Uh, you, 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 you might do three 12-hour days in a week and then have four days off. You know, It might be a 36-hour week, but those might be really intense three days a week every week. Uh, or maybe you choose to do that five days a week and you have a 70 hour work week. You know, that's, that's pretty intense. Not everybody wants that. But, um, as, as you, as you throttle yourself, you know, what, what is inspiring and lovely to you and the people you want to spend your time with. Um, but that's where you crush it because then you, your sphere of influence is only limited by the open market and the open market loves fast innovation. The open market loves fast fashion. The open market loves fast problem solving. The open market loves fast defect remediation. The open market loves uh, fast innovation. And that's your bottleneck when it's your own company. It's like your own little country, your own little set of policies. And I wish a lot more agilists would get really brave and either make companies of one or group with other agilists or take on the hard work. Uh, whatever company you're in, maybe you don't have to directly compete. That might be against documents you've signed or might be against your ethics, but take what you've learned into another opportunity. Uh, I can't even say how many times before I was in a company where they had one part of it that was the innovation engine. And they said, here's what we hope we're going to do in 10 years. And I'd say, why don't you do that today? And they'd say, it disrupt our current cash cow. And it's so disgusting like actually despicable. And then when you see a company that always says yes, 
If there's a better answer, it, it's immediately yes. And you see them worth 10 times as much money as the next nearest competitor. You say, obviously, this is the right answer. And it's exciting. And th- the best employees in that other company are leaving because we're not going to do the right thing for at least 10 years. They don't even want to be there anymore. They count down the days to retirement or they just fill their time with meetings because what else are they going to do? Like the right answer is there. So take that thing the company says we'll do in 10 years. Find the analogy of it that doesn't directly compete with your company and fits with your ethics and go do it. Just go do it now. And yes, it's hard. But why else are you alive? Right. Build stuff, create things, change the world, right? Like we shall have a positive influence on it. I love it. That's probably the great way to leave our listeners. Like here's a nudge to go be the change you want to be in the world, right? Like a little Gandhi quote at the end. Um, I, I love it. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, it's always inspiring every time we, we get to chat with you. So we really appreciate it. It is my honor and privilege to be part of the Agile Wire. May this not be the last time if I'm lucky. Let's do one live from Hawaii and let's do one live from over there, but uh, either on snowshoes or in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.